You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 320 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is Paul Rubichaud, professor and chair of English at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. Paul has written a book about the god Pan called Pan, the Great God's Modern Return. Let's get right to it. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and and what you do? Sure. Uh, My name is Paul Robichaud, and uh, I'm professor and chair of English uh, at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, Originally, I'm from Toronto, Canada, and um, my most recent book is Pan, The Great God's Modern Return from Reaction Books. Yes, and I was going to ask you about uh, another book uh, when I knew I was going to talk to you, but then I noticed that you uh, you shared it on Twitter, so I already know the answer, but uh, uh, it's this fictional book uh, about Pan um, called Jitterbug, if you know it. Oh, um, yes. Uh, t- yeah, that's by uh, by Tom Robbins. Um, Jitterbug, and um, that was a book. Um, uh, that was a book that came out in um, in the nineteen eighties. Uh, and Tom Robbins um, uh, is a, a, a popular novelist um, who, uh, in that book, um, wrote about uh, a, a sort of a kind of magical perfume that was made um, in part from um, uh, the odor of pan, <laughs> and uh, a sort of powerful scent. Um, and it's kind of a madcap adventure that takes the characters across um, uh, across the the ocean from um, uh, from Europe to the United States, and um, uh, and Pan figures in it uh, a little bit as uh, as a source of this this scent and kind of as a magical presence um, throughout these uh, these characters who kind of exist over over many centuries. And um, yeah, it's um, it's uh, so I, I talk about it briefly in my book. It's um, it's one of Pan's few kind of literary uh, adventures um, in uh, the last few decades. Yes, that's why I thought it was uh, an interesting book because you don't come across Pan that often. The only one I can think of is not really Pan, but it's similar. It's, it's that character in Narnia. Um, it's not really Pan, but it's Panish, I guess you could say. Uh, but uh, for the listener, can you give a short description of who is Pan? Sure. Yeah. Um, Pan was uh, an ancient Greek god, and um, he was not one of the twelve Olympians. Uh, he wasn't one of the twelve major gods who uh, lived on Mount Olympus. But he was rather um, a god of shepherds and of uh, pastures, um, who originated in a. a a region of Greece called Arcadia, which is uh, a kind of wild, mountainous region. Um, and for the ancient Greeks, it was uh, generally viewed as a kind of uncivilized place, um, a place where um, the inhabitants had uh, lived you know, for countless ages. They, uh, the other Greeks thought of the Arcadians as being older than the moon. And um, Pan uh, 
was originally worshipped there, and um, we don't have any records of, uh, you know, what myths or stories the Arcadians might have told about him. And um, one of the most striking things about Pan um, is his appearance, which is that he he has uh, the horns of a goat um, and the uh, the legs uh, uh, and hindquarters and hooves uh, of a goat. Um, sometimes he has a human face uh, in the way he's portrayed. Um, in the oldest portrayals, he often has uh, the head of a goat as well as as a goat's horns. Um, one of the interesting things about Pan's appearance is that um, the Arcadians um, didn't leave any uh, visual uh, record of, of him until after the cult of Pan had moved outside of Arcadia. Um, and some, some archaeologists wonder if Pan had any form uh, originally, if, or if he was one of those gods who may have been originally thought of as, as kind of formless, and then had this uh, uh, form kind of imagined for him um, after uh, his, his worship had left Arcadia. But um, it certainly makes sense because he was a god of flocks and pastures, and um, his earliest role uh, appears to have been as a kind of guardian of flocks of sheep and goats. Um, uh, which provided uh, kind of the the main uh, the main source of of wealth uh, in ancient Arcadia. So that that's his origin, and um, he kind of endures as a minor figure um, in Greek mythology later on. Um, there aren't very many myths about him. Um, perhaps the most famous is the story of how he got his pipes that uh, we often see him playing um, in art, and uh, that happened when he. Uh, fell madly in love with a, a nymph named Syrinx, um, chased her, and uh, in order to escape, uh, she uh, j- jumped into the river uh, Ladon and um, asked the nymphs there for help, and she was transformed into a reed. And um, in his sorrow, Pan plucked the reed and uh, made it into uh, his famous Pan pipes, and that's where, where those come from. In Scandinavia, uh, we have uh, a folklore about this kind of devil creature and uh, it's called uh, faun some translated into faun f-a-u-n but i think it's sometimes translated into pan i'm not sure about uh, the translation but he looks exactly like pan and uh, the only difference i guess often he's portrayed he has a suit on but uh, if he does, or like not a suit, but like nice clothes. But he he, he has the horns and the hoofs, and he instead of playing a flute, he plays a violin, and he's more like a devil character. And the the folklore myth is that if you start if you dance to his violin, uh, you will not be able to stop, and you'll you'll dance till you die, you know, and you'll follow him, and you become his like sl- servant or slave, you know. It's not really exactly like Pan, but it's very similar to Pan. I wonder if that's uh, they've uh, stolen some of that from from this legend you're talking about. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Um, uh, I, yeah, I'm I'm not familiar with with that figure. I know um, in, uh, for example, in um, in French Canadian uh, folklore, the devil is often uh, portrayed as uh, playing uh, playing the fiddle. Um, although I'm, I'm I don't think I've read a story where uh, where it's you know it's dangerous to to go dancing uh, to the devil's violin, although that that would make sense. Um, I think um, Pan Pan is 
because of his appearance, um, he does get confused or kind of mixed in with the devil, um, particularly in the, the 19th century, um, where he becomes, um, he pu- becomes identified as a, as a kind of a, an occult figure uh, who is often synonymous with the devil. Um, and um, prior to that, the, the devil is usually portrayed not in the way we're familiar with, with the, the horns and, uh, and uh, goat's legs and so on, but often as this kind of assemblage of uh, different um, animal parts um, to kind of reflect he, something really unnatural uh, about him. But um, I think I think throughout uh, not just European but but world folklore, there's a kind of fascination with creatures who are part human, part animal, and the way they they kind of cross the the boundary between um, what makes us human and um, the animal nature that we share with other creatures, which um, which I think is often viewed as as being threatening and dangerous. Um, and and so you have the kinds of figures you're uh, like the one you're mentioning in um, Scandinavian mythology. So most people who are not into these kinds of topics, they know pan is you know like pantheism, God is in everything, or or pansexual, you're attracted to to anything. How come uh, this word pan has become synonymous with like everything? You know. Oh yeah, that's a that's a great question, and um, uh, one of the the fascinating things I learned as I was uh, kind of reading about uh, Pan as I was starting to write was that very early on um, the Greeks confused uh, Pan's name, which originally derives from um, a word meaning to pasture, you know, to put your animals out to pasture. In other words, Um, it may also be related to a word meaning companion. Um, They confused it with their word, Pan meaning all, which is uh, the word uh, you're talking about, which survives as a, you know as a kind of prefix in words like that, like pandemic or pan European or what have you. Um, and so, because of this confusion, the ancient Greeks um, started to think of Pan not just as this god of uh, fields and flocks and uh, goats and so on, but actually as the god of everything. Um, and so there's this really interesting uh, development um, in antiquity where uh, philosophers uh, who belong to you know, the, the Stoic school or um, uh, kind of ancient pagan mystics like the, the Orphic uh, tradition, um, they start to identify Pan as the god of all, as the god of everything. And so, for example, uh, there's an ancient Orphic hymn to Pan. There's a series of, of ancient hymns called the Orphic Hymns, and um, they're all kind of hymns or poems or prayers uh, to the different pagan gods. And um, the one that survives to, to Pan um, really thinks of him as this cosmic god of everything. So it describes him essentially as this, this kind of element binding together the whole universe even at the same time that he's this uh, horned god of shepherds and so on. So this connection between Pan and, and everything and this, uh, this little kind of prefix or, or word we have uh, meaning all, um, that's a connection that goes back to ancient, ancient times. Um, and it was either you know, confusion on the part of the Greeks or what, what I think might be equally plausible that um, it's kind of a pun. You know, they, they heard the, 
uh, the word is more or less sounding the same. And so they kind of uh, built on that to, to reimagine Pan as this kind of cosmic God. So, um, so he kind of acquires this more universal nature um, as far back as the ancient world. But in terms of hierarchy, wouldn't the God of everything or all be, be like the, the top one? Um, yes, right. Um, and so we, we come back to this, this kind of weird position Pan has where he's not one of the 12 Olympians. And um, in, in Greek mythology, you know, the, the, the ancient mythographers like to kind of tie everything together. It was often hard for them because there were often many competing traditions um, about the gods and they were not always reconcilable. Um, in the case of Pan, um, Pan's birth, like his parents, uh, was often something that uh, ancient mythographers, uh, ancient Greek writers had trouble agreeing on. Um, so for example, uh, thinking about Pan being kind of a more universal god, um, in, in some under in some understandings of the mythology, uh, he was thought of as having fought alongside Zeus um, in the battle against the Titans and helped Zeus out by tricking um, a Titan named Typhon into um, giving back Zeus's uh, sinews and muscles and things, so Zeus could kind of reassemble himself. and And in that version, um, he, he's kind of thought of as Zeus's brother. So he, he is one of those more ancient gods, but in other versions, um, Pan is thought of, uh, typically as, uh, the son of Hermes, which would actually make him a much junior God. Um, and, uh, Pan's mother is, um, is a whole other area of controversy. Um, there, there's very little agreement about who Pan's uh, mother was, the, the general consensus, if you can call it that, is that uh, his mother was a nymph uh, of some kind. But beyond that, there's a lot of uncertainty. So, um, so kind of the the point you raise that if you know if Pan is a universal god, wouldn't he be uh, kind of before Zeus or at least alongside Zeus uh, in some way? Um, the Greeks seem to be aware of that and uh, had some trouble fitting Pan into their their system. And I think it kind of draws our attention to Pan as really as an outsider God. He's not, he's not one that fits very well into uh, the whole kind of Greek mythological world. I was going to say, he, he reminds me a bit about Hermes because Hermes is like a trickster God and he's also a bit of a trickster. So it makes sense that it's his father then. Yeah. Uh, and I, right. He, so he, Pan has um, this, kind of trickster quality to him with his um with his pipes and um the the main thing he was known for doing was instilling a sense of panic um in fact our word panic derives from pan's name um so if you were walking through the woods or something like that and you felt a sudden sense of terror that was pan pan was was causing you to to have that sensation of of panic um and there is something mischievous about that, uh, and so it does connect. Um, it does connect. I think. I think you're right. It connects well with, uh, with the god Hermes, um, who was himself uh, a trickster god, um, and and it's interesting thinking about you know c- kind of connections between Pan's role and the role of uh, figures like the devil in in European folklore. And I think one common thread is that, that role of the, the trickster, uh, the tempter, perhaps, um, thinking about the devil, but, um, this ability to instill panic, uh, connects him 
with Hermes uh, propensity for mischief. Um, and one of Pan's ancient titles actually was mischief. So this was something the, the Greeks recognized as well. But, but I think you're right. there's something that feels right about connecting uh, Pan to, to Hermes. Um, I think they, they seem to go well together. I've always been interested in, in characters that fall under the, the archetype of, of the fool, uh, which is like Hermes and I guess Pan. Also modern characters like the Joker, as they all feel to, like they're in the same kind of family, that they can be bad, but they can also be good. Uh, but they what they do is they might look at things from an unusual perspective which could could create chaos or panic or something but uh, they like pull the rug under you and forces you to see things from a different perspective i mean that's my impression of of these kinds of gods or characters yes yeah i i think that's right i think um those trickster figures uh they they tend to do that um and I think some some of those aspects of Pan are are really more more fully developed um, later on. Um, one one story that comes to mind is um, a novel by the the British uh, occultist um, Dion Fortune, um, who wrote a book called the the Goatfoot God. Um, and in that book, um, the main character Hugh um, is kind of having a midlife crisis. Um, he's um, He's on his own, um, and uh, he's never really gotten in touch with his feelings. He has a sense of meaninglessness, and um, over the course of the book, um, through all kinds of uh, kind of crazy incidents and coincidences, he comes in touch with the power of Pan. Um, and uh, as he comes to know Pan and understand what Pan is, and and Pan as a power of nature, um, he acquires that new perspective you mentioned. Uh, on his life, and uh, he's able to finally uh, kind of find find true love, but also find a sense of purpose um, as he restores an old monastery in the woods um, and things like that. And and I think um, I think fortune there is is really drawing on what you you point to, which is that the, these these liminal figures or characters um, are often ones that invite us to to reconsider our perspective to look at things anew and by doing that um getting in touch with uh neglected parts of ourself maybe connecting in a deeper way with uh those around us or even even the the kind of universe uh, around us um yeah do you see any correlation with the this character in hinduism krishna because he's he has a like a flute and he also uh, is uh, in pasture kind of environments. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm, I'm truthfully not very familiar with uh, with Hindu um, tradition. There, there is a god, though, in Hinduism that um, is sometimes connected with Pan, um, and that's uh, uh, Pushtan. And he, uh, he like Pan, has a name that um, has its roots in in a word meaning pasture and. Um, in the past, uh, and I'm I'm not. This is not my area of expertise. But uh, from from reading about this in the past, linguists thought that the two gods might in fact be be connected. Like if you went back far enough into the Indo-European past, you might have a kind of common god that springs off into Pan in the West, and then in the Hindu tradition becomes Pushtan. Um, linguists don't 
generally think that anymore. But there are some intriguing parallels. Both of these gods um, uh, are connected with with pastures. Uh, both are connected with goats. Um, and uh, just as uh, the ancient Arcadians made votive offerings to gain Pan's uh, kind of blessing and uh, and good fortune, um, worshippers of uh, Pushtan would would do something very similar. So. Um, I don't know about about Krishna, but um, that that's intriguing about the flute because, of course, the the pipes are are really what Pan is is most closely uh, associated with, um, you know, as far as as music goes. Yeah, it could also be as simple as the flute. That kind of instrument was one of the earliest instruments we had, and it was common. I mean, there wasn't maybe guitars or other instruments, so it. it appeared in many different traditions the flute i mean yeah yeah i think that that makes sense and and uh, if you think about the the flutes or the the pipes that you know they're they're an instrument that the breath passes through right i mean it makes a noise because we we blow into them or you know we breathe into them um and of course the breath in many traditions is thought of as uh as sacred as, as in some way um, synonymous with life. We have to breathe uh, to live. So I think it, it makes sense that um, divine figures in different traditions would, would be connected with that. So what made you write a book about Pan? It's, it's, a, it's a very niche topic and uh, uh, it's, um, you know, uh, very specific. Oh, yeah, um, it is. Um, I guess I... So I guess my um, my my feeling or interest in Pan goes back to really when when I was a child reading um, Kenneth Graham's The Wind and the Willows and uh, the wonderful chapter uh, he he included in that book uh, called The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, um, where um, the water rat and the mole um, are searching for a baby otter and uh, as they row down the the river they hear um, this beautiful piping music that is enchanting and impossible to to describe and um they come to a small island in the river and they have a vision of uh the piper at the gates of dawn who is uh very clearly pan he has uh he has the horns and he's he's the protector of uh the animals here he's actually protecting this lost baby otter and um the animals rescue uh the otter, and then they lose all memory of this uh, this encounter, and so it's a very magical moment. Um, and it fascinated me when I when I read the book as a, as a child. Um, but I was I, I guess what started it was I was reading um, the modern English writer uh, D. H. Lawrence. Um, he, he mentions uh, Pan uh, in a number of his his shorter stories, uh, kind of around nineteen twenty three. And I was thinking about them, and I was wondering about Pan, and I started to think about um, the way Pan started to appear in um, literature and culture, you know, in, in the decades around 1900 or so. And um, as I was reading around a little bit, I, it, it occurred to me that um, it was probably time for a, a kind of fresh look at Pan. And um, it would be really interesting to look at Pan, not just, not just in literature. Um, the last book doing that came out in the, the 1960s, but kind of thinking about Pan um, as he appears in all, all kinds of different forms, from from music to painting to um, to literature, as well as uh, kind of modern occult and 
kind of pagan or, or new age uh, spirituality. Um, but I, 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 I think I agree with you. Pan is kind of a, a niche interest, but I think that's one of the things that makes him so fascinating is that, you know, he is kind of on the outside. He's not one of those major gods that gets all the attention and has all these myths about him, but someone who's really appealed to, I don't know, sort of appealed to people who uh, felt themselves on, on the outside, I think, um, you know, D.H. Lawrence, for example, was was very much a an outsider in, in his time. But um, yeah, and I I think he I think he resonates in a lot of ways with our contemporary concerns over the environment, our relationship to to animals, to our own kind of animal nature, and to the environment more generally. So kind of all those things uh, kind of came together as I was uh, thinking about the book. But that's what sort of led me there. So now, uh, today, is is Pan uh, a a god some groups worship, or how does he appear these days? Uh, is there like a religion where he's a head figure or something? Well, yeah, that's um, that's an interesting question um, because it, it's it's kind of um, it's it's a complicated question in some ways. There certainly are uh, individuals. Um, who worship Pan, um, modern uh, pagans, uh, for example. Um, he has a role in uh, in Thelema, the, the spiritual tradition um, Alistair uh, Crowley uh, founded. Um, he himself was kind of a devotee of Pan, and um, in, in his kind of spiritual system, the Knight of Pan, um, is uh, an important step in, in people's inner development. It's kind of a shattering of the ego and so on. Um, but as far as worshiping Pan goes, uh, we, we find an interesting um, kind of intersection, I guess, between uh, modern witchcraft and uh, the ancient figure of Pan. Um, so in the early 20th century, um, uh, Margaret A. Murray uh, made an argument that what we call witchcraft was really the survival of an ancient pagan religion um, devoted to a horned god. And um, she kind of mentions Pan in passing as an example of that. Um, But when Gerald Gardner, uh, after the Second World War, uh, started writing about uh, this mysterious ancient uh, religion that he called Wicca, um, he also uh, wrote about Pan. Um, and he connected Pan a little more explicitly with uh, with the god of the witches. And so um, many contemporary witches um, worship or have a kind of relationship uh, to a horned god. Um, and, and, many, uh, and many of them do think of that horned god as Pan, um, at least in some sense. So so it's kind of so it's kind of a, a difficult question to answer. I, I think that it's probably going too far to say that we have a contemporary religion where everybody kind of worships Pan. But I think that uh, through the figure of the horned god, certainly um, Pan has found his way into uh, many contemporary forms of witchcraft and uh, pagan uh, worship. But if if somebody would. Uh burn a candle for pan or, or make an offering or something what would be the um, goal of that I mean like usually every god has like a purpose like uh, if you want your children to be safe you make a you you pray to uh, this specific god uh, what is pan's like uh, trait in that sense well I think that um, 
I, I think perhaps one of the appeals of Pan is that he, he, because of this connection to to nature uh, more more generally, and and even this other role as a kind of universal god, um, he's not he isn't quite as focused as some of the other pagan gods, right? I mean, if you think about um, you know Mars, you know the god of war, right? If we're if we're a warrior going into battle, we might uh, make an offering to Mars for victory or something like that. But I think I think your question is is really a good one. And um, in the ancient world, Pan um, was would have been made offerings uh, to to protect one's flocks, one's sheep, and so on. Um, for and and I think that uh, that sense of protection uh, is something that uh, he was often turned to for. Um, even he was worshipped in Athens, for example, um, after he uh, intervened on the Athenians' behalf, uh, fighting the Persians, um, and and so Pan, the notion of Pan as a protector, uh, it really plays a role there. I think for modern pagans, um, I, I think there's probably a variety of reasons why they might uh, make an offering to Pan. Certainly for protection, um, I think for fertility, for health. Um, for, for a deeper connection with nature, I think all of those things would, would probably come into it. But um, I think the, the fact that Pan is not quite so narrowly uh, defined as some of the other gods actually makes him uh, maybe more of an appealing figure uh, for many people. Was there ever a temple built for him? There, there were a few, but not, not very many. Um, outside of, uh, there, there was a there was a, a, a temple um, where there was an altar to Pan in Arcadia. Um, there's at least one of those. Um, when Pan's worship spreads out of Arcadia in the ancient world, um, he's usually worshipped in caves or grottos. So when he was <clears throat> worshipped at Athens, for example, they set aside a little kind of cave um, for him. Um, but he didn't have the the kinds of temples we would associate with the other gods. Um, one of the uh, one of the most exciting uh, kind of finds or discoveries about Pan um, in recent years was the discovery in um, the demilitarized zone in in, in northern um, Israel of uh, a, a temple complex where uh, Pan was worshipped, um, and uh, they discovered um, a really beautiful. And, and actually kind of eerie looking uh, bronze mask of Pan. Um, and he seems to have been worshipped in this, this kind of cave complex um, along with uh, Dionysus. Um, and they, they kind of built out, uh, you know, some pillars and a portico and things like that. But um, even there, uh, his temple was basically a, a big cave. Um, and uh, this appears to have been a center of worship in uh, the, during the, the Roman uh, later Roman Empire, um, but yeah, uh, again, that's something something unique about Pan um, compared with the other gods is he doesn't really seem to have had these formal temples built in his honor the way uh, so many of the other um, Greek and Roman gods did. Norse mythology is still quite alive today in Scandinavia. Of course, not in the same sense as it was long ago, but uh, people still. Um, in a loose way, might mention certain gods or 
they might wear jewelry uh, a very popular one is the thor's hammer as a, as a piece of jewelry it's very common to see uh, unfortunately in uh, in the last few decades it's been adopted a bit by the far right movements uh, those kind of people usually have the hammer of thor for some sort of patriotic symbol you know but so it should be recla- reclaimed from them i guess but uh, uh, but how is it, it Greek people do they uh, have they completely uh, cut ties with all these different gods or do you know if it's still uh, like alive somehow in their society yeah um i don't i don't know too much about that um you know i think you know historically um greek greek nationality was often uh very closely tied to um to the greek orthodox church and so um i think that you know the the centrality of of that church in in greek life has probably worked against um a kind of you know full-on uh pagan uh revival but it's not something i'm familiar with so that would, that would be something i'd be be curious to know um i think that um here again we see with pan though because he has these kinds of associations with with nature with uh with the universe and and so forth that he he travels you know he travels beyond um his original greek context um and that's true even uh even in the ancient world uh, as as with the example of this uh, remarkable cave temple um located in um uh nor- northern israel um but even in more recent times, the, the really the center of the, the modern pan revival is is England, um, you know, which is uh, in so many ways not like <laughs> ancient Greece. Um, but uh, the, there is something about pan that he, he he kind of slips through. He kind of eludes these uh, these national um, these national borders and these kinds of different uh, traditions in in ways that. Um, Many other, you know, many other mythologies, including Greek mythology, um, I don't think are are quite fully able to do right. Um, in other words, you know, Greek Greek and Roman mythology um, are a touchstone, of course, of of uh, Western civilization and culture. But um, when Pan is imagined, um, you know, in in the nineteenth and twentieth century, you know, by say English artists and writers, he's imagined as being. In England, he becomes a god of the English countryside, um, and a number of English writers, Robert Louis Stevenson, um, Kenneth Graham, and, and many others, imagine him as a kind of nature spirit um, in the the woods and fields of of England itself. So, Pan's kind of universal nature, I think, um, allows him to be fully adopted um, in in um, cultures and contexts that. Um, may not be so uh, easy to do with with other gods with a more specifically national kind of association. Yeah, hearing you talk about him in in, in terms of Norse mythology, maybe a counterpart would be Loki. He's also a trickster god, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think um I think that makes sense and he's um Loki's a, a trickster god. He's he's one of the uh, he's one of the gods, but he's he's kind of an outsider, right? Because he's um, um, his um, his mother was a frost giant, and so he's he's one of them, but he's not completely one of them. And um, he's 
he's dangerous, but he's also uh, playful. He's mischievous um, in, in many of the ways Pan was as well, I think. So, yeah, I think that that's a parallel that works well. What I like with all these different old traditions is that they, it's not so black and white. You know, there's no pure evil or pure good like... Uh, 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 the good gods can also be do bad things, but not necessarily because they want to be bad, but uh, depends on what they're doing, but it could affect other people in a bad way. Like Shiva, for instance, when, when Shiva creates a world, she also, dist- or he or she, uh, destroys a world, you know. Uh, I like that more than... Uh, like in modern, a lot, a lot of times in like modern films and modern literature, it's just like this character is evil, and that's that's it. You know, like there's no uh, uh, there's no depth to it. Like uh, uh, you can't with Loki and Pan and all these these kinds of characters, you can't really say they're good or bad. You know, when you're a trickster. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's right, and um, and that I, that has to be a part of their appeal too that um these trickster gods are they're they're kind of outside uh that that black and white way of looking at the world where something's either good or it's or it's evil that they kind of occupy this middle ground um where they they might do something um upsetting and dangerous and and so on um or they might be a helper um but they they also remind us that you know those those powers those beings that um, we we identify or imagine as gods aren't aren't human you know they don't they don't fit into our neat uh, little categories um, our our sense of of good and evil for example um, from from the perspective of of the gods um, may may look quite different uh, from from our own point of view and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of nuance there, and I think that's that's part of the appeal of these kind of trickster gods. Um, you know, you think about the even even thinking about Loki and some of his more modern um, recent incarnations, like in in Marvel comics and those those films. Um, he's kind of he's a pretty nuanced character. You can't just dismiss him and say he's completely evil, you know, or, or anything like that. Um, and I think that's something all these trickster gods have in common. So if people want to uh, read your book, where can they find it? Oh, um, yeah. Um, my book's available um, at um, really through any, um, any online uh, book retailer. Um, I'd encourage uh, people to try to get it through uh, their local independent bookstore. Um, but um, it's available where, um, you know, wherever, you can, wherever you can buy your books. Um, and again, that's from Reaction Books. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Right, it's a pleasure to speak with you as well. Welcome to Perceptions Today podcast. We will be discussing a wide variety of changing perceptions and ongoing research about topics such as consciousness, health, medicine, science, physics, history, metaphysics, the paranormal and reality. Join us as we learn and discover fascinating new information about these and other topics from people in the field, doing the research and having the experiences. During our discussions, we hope to engage you in the process to ignite your own creativity and alter your perceptions in new and exciting ways. The adventure begins now. Find us on podcast apps, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Once again, that's Perceptions Today.
Hey, this is Anthony Tyler, host of Black Hoodie Alchemy on the Fringe FM. You can catch me every Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time, where we uh, talk about the dark side of metaphysics and we'll chill a little bit. Uh, And you can catch me the day after on Spotify or Apple or Amazon or wherever else you stream your podcasts. If you've ever wondered what someone like Carl Jung might say about serial killers or perhaps cryptids, then this is the show for you. Skeptical? yet open-minded, empirical, but philosophical. We are going to talk about some really weird stuff, so I hope you join me on Black Hoodie Alchemy. Take it easy. After doing this interview, I cannot believe I forgot to mention Peter Pan. The character's name comes, after all, directly from Pan himself. This is referenced particularly in the novel Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens where uh, Peter Pan plays pipes to the fairies and even rides a goat. I also didn't mention I've seen um, Pan in the flesh. I think I've uh, talked about that story before in the podcast, but I had a when I was younger I had this visionary experience seeing a pan-like creature sitting in the forest looking at me. Uh, an image or a vision I cannot explain. Could be just the imagination of a child or in fact it could have been Pan himself who knows I'm going to close this episode with something called Hymn to Pan written by Alistair Crowley with an invocation by Son of a Priest the music was arranged and performed by Brutal Wounds now you should light a candle and turn off all the lights burn some incense and listen to this track I dare you See you all in the next one. Freedom is in the mind. Thrill with lysome lust of the light. Oh man, my man. Come careering out of the night of Pan. Yo, Pan. Yo, Pan. Yo, Pan. Come over the sea from Sicily and from Arcady, roaming as Bacchus with fauns and pards and nymphs and satyrs for thy guards. On a milk-white ass, come over the sea to me, to me. Come with Apollo in bridal dress, shepherdess and pythoness. Come with Artemis, silken shod, and wash thy white thigh, beautiful god, in the moon of the woods, on the marble mount, the dimpled dawn of the amber fount. Dip the purple of passionate prayer in the crimson shrine, the scarlet snare, the soul that startles in eyes of blue to watch thy wantonness weeping through the tangled grove, the gnarled bowl of the living tree that is spirit and soul and body and brain. Come over the sea, Yopan, Yopan, devil or god, to me, to me. My man, my man, come with trumpets sounding shrill over the hill. Come with drums low muttering from the spring. Come with flute and come with pipe. Am I not ripe? I who wait and writhe and wrestle with air 
that hath no bows to nestle my body weary of empty clasp strong as a lion and sharp as an asp oh come oh come I am numb with the lonely lust of devildom thrust the sword through the galling fetter all devourer all begetter give me the sign of the open eye and the token erect of thorny thigh and the word of madness and mystery oh pan yo pan yo pan yo pan 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 i am a man do as thou wilt as a great god can oh pan yo pan yo In the grip of the snake, the eagle slashes with beak and claw, the gods withdraw, the great beasts come. Yo, Pan, I am born to the death on the horn of the unicorn. I am Pan, yo, Pan, yo, Pan, 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 I am thy mate, I am thy man, goat of thy flock, I am gold, I am God, flesh to thy bone. Flower to thy rod, with hooves of steel, I race on the rocks, through solstice stubborn to equinox, and I rave, and I rave. 